this edition of the Thoracic Surgery Resident Association's podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for teaching purposes only and should not be applied directly to patient care. Welcome from the University of Michigan. My name is Candace Jones, and I have the distinct honor this morning of speaking with Dr. Robert Bartlett in his lab here in Ann Arbor to discuss the history of extracorporeal life support. Thank you for joining us this morning. Can you speak to your personal thoughts in the early 70s when you were using this technology in a clinical application for the first time? In the past, you've talked about the technical challenges of transitioning from lab to clinical application, but take us back to your personal thoughts around that transition for you. Well, of course, the reason that we were doing this at all was was to try to treat patients who had acute but theoretically reversible heart failure or lung failure. We really started because of cardiac failure in children post-op because there there was no balloon pump, there's no VAD, there was no mechanical device. So if a child was dying after a cardiac operation, that was what we intended to do, keep him on the heart-lung machine for a couple of days, and that, in fact, turned out to work worked very well. Uh, the And the respiratory side, it made sense. Here's a patient who's dying of respiratory failure. We can replace gas exchange function for a period of days with the hope that the native lung will recover. Uh, and so I described to you the first adult case in 71, our first newborn case in, in 75. And uh, we we uh, we're not surprised by that because we've been working in the lab for about ten years of time, so we knew that this technology would work in animals, mostly sheep. We uh, and over time we learned it would work in in adult patients. Most of it had to do with anticoagulation and how to how to control anticoagulation at a very low level, so the blood is just barely anticoagulated, so we did that with heparin, which was the, the drug at the time, and developed a technique to measure the amount of anticoagulation, so-called activated clotting time, which is still used to decide how to regulate the heparin dose and so on. So, uh, but what did we think about it? Well, when we had those first two or three or four or five successful cases, we thought, okay, this is a done deal, this, this works. So, and not surprising, it's just elementary physiology. If you can get through a period, if the heart or lung will recover, then, then it should. So, uh, although at the time everyone else in the world thought it was a little crazy, we, we, those of us who were doing it said, well, we, we, we knew this was going to work. And, and so uh, it's taken many years for that to be widely applied. The involvement of industry is really crucial because uh, you, you could do this in your own hospital or a small area with you if you kludge together machinery that was really intended for cardiac surgery. But when companies seriously got into the business of making devices that were safe to use, simple to use, didn't break at the bedside, uh, then that's resulted in the really rapid growth over the last 10 years or so. So looking forward, where do we go from here? What do you see in the future for ECLS? Well, the, the current uh, application of this technology is for patients who have uh, severe cardiac failure 
unresponsive to everything else that you can do with drugs or balloon pumps or uh, things like that, that, then that's the indication to go on this technique for cardiac failure and buy some time, go to the cath lab, fix the problems, go to the OR if necessary, uh, with, the, with the hope of cardiac recovery. Where that's growing most rapidly right now is in emergency rooms uh, using a technique that's come to be called eCPR. It's CPR for cardiac arrest supplemented by venoarterial ECMO or cardiopulmonary bypass. Not a surprise, those patients do much better than the patients that are having conventional CPR. That means the usual 2% survival compared to about 30% survival. So this is now growing rapidly in emergency rooms around the world uh, for patients with acute, acute cardiac failure. Uh, the, on the respiratory side, the uh, adult pulmonologists, especially in the United States, have been uh, quite slow to adopt this technology. It's hard to do. Pulmonologists don't do it. You have to talk to a surgeon to get the patient hooked up uh, so that it's, it's still, surprisingly, there are pulmonologists in the United States, critical care docs who, who don't know about ECMO, don't know how to do it. In Europe and in Japan and most other places in the world, this is now standard treatment so that uh, a patient with severe respiratory failure, and there are lots of ways to measure it, who's at the 80% mortality risk or higher, uh, that's the indication to use ECMO, and the survival rate is about 60 to 70%. So uh, that's growing in, in respiratory failure from the point of view of moving it earlier in the course of disease because the patient with severe respiratory failure wind up getting intubated, they get to be on a mechanical ventilator, they get to be on high pressure, on high oxygen concentration, all of which is very damaging to the lung, so that, uh, so that a significant part of the mortality for ARDS is caused by the treatment itself. It's, it's interesting that the mortality for ARDS, adult respiratory failure, has not changed in about 25 years. It's, it's, uh, 40% mortality if you have that diagnosis. Hard to believe that because you think, well, we're pretty good at this. We do all kinds of things to manage lung injury, but in fact, in individual hospitals and in worldwide studies, the overall mortality for having that diagnosis is about 40%. So if you take, if you can identify those patients who are most likely to die in the first two or three days of illness, and then put them on ECMO to get them off the ventilator, to get them off 100% oxygen, then we know the survival rate is about 70%. So where this uh, is going in the future is to focus on detecting those patients who have a high risk of dying in the first day or two of ventilator management and converting them over to ECMO at that time. An ECMO variant that, is, that has been around forever but it's being looked at again in acute lung injury is using ECMO primarily for CO2 removal. So this, this gets known by the name of ECOR, extracorporeal CO2 removal, and any membrane lung will remove a huge amount of CO2. It's much better at removing CO2 than providing oxygen. So the theory is that if you just remove CO2, 
then the patient doesn't have to be in a ventilator because the reason you breathe is to remove CO2, not to provide oxygen, so that you can avoid the high airway pressure and stress that occurs with mechanical ventilation. So uh, this, this is being looked at again as a simple way of using ECMO uh, earlier in the course of lung disease. Where will this go in the future? I think probably a few years from now what we'll be doing is putting patients on ECMO at about 50% mortality risk and if we're doing it that early we're going to have about 95% survival so it will evolve to earlier use. Well, this is true for all types of artificial organs. There was a time when we first started using dialysis for renal failure that we would wait until the BUN was 600 and the creatinine was 10, and then you could try this radical dialysis technique. And of course, we've learned that nowadays a patient just looks like they might have renal failure, they go on some form of renal replacement therapy. And the same is true for heart disease. We used to wait on VADs and so on until the patient was more abundant. Now we have learned that it's better to use artificial organs earlier in the course of disease, it just makes sense. The other uh, application that's coming down the line is is going to be in sepsis and septic shock. So that that's a much bigger worldwide public health problem than respiratory failure. And, uh, and what we've learned that if we put patients in septic shock on ECMO, uh, then we can turn off all the drugs that that caused a lot of the problem. All the norepinephrine and the vasopressin and the other drugs that, that uh, are inherently dangerous that are used to keep up the blood pressure, uh, we can do that mechanically and turn off all those drugs and, and then that buys you a day or two or ten in order to treat the infection. So the results in septic shock are remarkably good and that's, that's just starting to be an application for ECMO support. What kinds of things are you working on in your lab today? Well, uh, we, we, this lab has been going for almost 50 years now, so ECMO has resulted from it. But uh, uh, the focus in the lab is in several areas. One is to try to eliminate systemic anticoagulation by making plastic that won't clot. And that will change a whole lot of ECMO because the major complication is still bleeding. Less of a problem now than it used to be, but it's, that's eliminating the anticoagulant is a major goal, and we're working on that using nitric oxide, a normal endogenous material to prevent platelets from sticking to the plastic surfaces. We're working on an artificial placenta. It's an ECMO variant for very premature, eventually babies, right now lambs, uh, with the idea that if a baby's born very prematurely, in human terms, 23, 4, 5, 6, 7 weeks of time, most of those babies die, and the ones who don't die have lung injury, brain injury, and so on. So what we're doing is using an ECMO type of system to simulate the intrauterine environment so that if a baby is extremely premature, we use this technique to avoid intubation, to avoid anything, just simulating the, the normal intrauterine situation until the lungs recover or grow to the point of being able to sustain life. Uh, we're, we're doing this in, in animals, obviously, but we're probably five years away from clinical trials. 
And then finally we're working on implantable or wearable artificial lungs, membrane lungs that can be used to support gas exchange in patients with respiratory failure that's not getting better after a week or two or three. As I said, we, we have ECMO patients who've been on for six months or a year or two years of time who recover at the end of it, but that's really impractical for a patient like that to be using up a bed in the ICU. And uh, so we're pushing toward uh, putting in devices that will take over lung function that will allow getting the patient out of the ICU or even out of the hospital. Home ECMO, that's where we're heading. Sounds preposterous, but in fact that's exactly where we've been with ventricular assist devices in the last 20 years. It used to be those patients had to stay in the ICU for a year or two until they got a transplant, and nowadays, ho-hum, we put it in and you go home with your, with your VAD in place. So we'll be there for respiratory failure in a few years. How and why did you get involved in this kind of research at the beginning? Well, I was uh, a resident, and I happened to be a resident at a remarkable place. It was at the Peter Bent Brigham Hospital, and which no longer exists. It has another name now, in Boston, with uh, just a bunch of very creative, very bright mentors in that place. But we spent a year at the Children's Hospital, which is right across the street. And, and the chief of surgery there was Robert E. Gross. So Robert E. Gross is the father of cardiac surgery, pediatric surgery, vascular surgery, the first person to put in an artificial heart valve and so on, but, but uh, really the first person to operate successfully in and around the heart in children. Remarkable man. So I was a uh, junior resident there spending a year at the children's along with my colleagues and uh, that is, was the early days of cardiac surgery. So if a patient had been on the pump for more than an hour and we were starting to do tetralogy repairs and things like that, we were, Dr. Gross was, uh, then uh, about half of those children died and they died in the first day or two post-op. And uh, so, we knew about the heart lung machine. I had the temerity to go to Dr. Gross and say, why don't we just keep these children on the heart lung machine for a couple of days? Because we knew if they lived two days, they'd be fine. In retrospect, this is what we used to call myocardial stun. We, it still happens on occasion in the OR. And of course, he said, well, you can't do that. That's the reason they're so sick is because of the heart lung machine. But why don't you work on it? So uh, that's what I call great mentoring. Here's a problem, why don't you fix it? But so a lot of people have asked that question, how did you get involved with this? But it's really just taking care of sick patients one after another. And we, we didn't set out to build a heart-lung machine or do any of this kind of stuff. We just had a problem, it was a clinical problem, and wanted to see what we could do to solve it. So that, in that particular instance, boiled down to making membrane type of artificial lungs and once we had done that and it was not easy there are a lot of details that relate to gas transfer that we learned a lot about but once we could do that then we could maintain extracorporeal circulation for a longer period of time uh, those first few cases that i told you about the patient in santa barbara and the cardiac patient and so on uh, were uh, 
unusual because no one had ever done that. So people say, well, could you do this today with the IRB? And I'm, well, of course you could. We talked to all the people who were involved, and, and you didn't just do it. You had to justify it. We've done this in the laboratory and so on and so forth. Now we think we've learned this enough to be able to do this uh, to a patient. Uh, but but that that's a major step whenever you take some new fairly radical, risky intervention and do it for the first time in patients. Everybody is worried about it, other people, but mostly yourself. Are we doing the right thing? We had learned uh, in the laboratory that we could use the carotid artery for arterial access. And that wasn't a surprise for cardiac surgeons because we used the subclavian or the carotid to make Blalock shunts all the time. And we know that you could sacrifice one carotid with impunity, but nonetheless, to do that in a child who's, my God, we're just going to ligate the carotid artery and put a big cannula in there and pump into the aorta. Most people say, that that's crazy. You can't do that. They're all going to have strokes and problems and so on. Well, we knew that wouldn't happen, but in fact, we worried about it. And in fact, it, it didn't happen. It was a safe, safe way to get to the arterial circulation. What have been some of the rewards and challenges along the way? Well, uh, the, the reward is just taking care of patients. So, uh, of course, we've, we've had 2,000 ECMO patients here at Michigan. As of, as of the time I stopped operating, we're now up to close to 3,000, something like that. So there are a lot of, uh, a lot of patients that, that we've taken care of who have recovered from what thought to be fatal illness because of this technology. So that's, that really makes you feel good, of course. And uh, every week or so, I get an email or a letter from somebody somewhere in the world saying, you don't know me, but my doctor said you worked on this stuff. Thank you for that. It's nice to get pictures of them. We, uh, here in the ECMO lab, uh, three years ago, we had three, we have a lot of undergraduate students who work here in the lab. Uh, we Three of these students had been on ECMO as newborn infants. They, that wasn't why they wound up here, it just happened to be the case. Uh, so that was kind of fun to see kids that I'd put on ECMO 20 years before who are now here in the lab getting along. We, we just did a big study of follow-up of newborn cases that are now over the age of 18. Uh, and they do remarkably well. They're, they're uh, a little more advanced than their peers, uh, not because they're smarter, although they look smarter, but it really, I think, because they're the featured kid in the family, everyone was, was uh, paid a lot of extra attention to them to the baby that was uh, looked like they were going to die. But uh, but that's quite rewarding to see healthy people around the world that, that uh, probably would have died otherwise if without it. And those people are doing well. The real reward comes in all those residents and faculty members and students who learn a lot about physiology in the process of working on this project. So. So they, our understanding of heart and lung failure, it's really just old-fashioned physiology, but uh, to, get, to get everyone to realize that that's really important and care of patients re results in improved care for everybody in the ICU. How do you feel when people refer to you as the father of modern ECMO? <laughs> well, 
uh, I, I get called the father back one day, I'm, and I always quick to say it, that's really not true. Ted Colabo, if you're going to identify the father of ECMO, it's Ted Colabo, who, as I said, was this remarkable man, still alive, uh, who worked at the NIH his whole career as a kind of a gadgeteer, but he's developed the, the membrane lung that really we used for the first 20 years or so, and uh, did the basic science in animals that, that uh, we all learned from and then did the same thing. So. Uh, so uh, I get credit for being persistent, staying with this when everybody said it was nonsense, uh, and and I guess there's something to that. But uh, but the real the key person is Ted Colombo. I have a feeling a lot of residents listen to these podcasts. To close, can you reflect a bit on your times in training and any advice you may have? Yeah, sure. So this looking back on this, this is viewed as this brilliant research project. Here we had this problem, we set out to solve it, we solved it, now it's used around the world and so on. Uh, but, uh, but that's just looking back. Looking forward, uh, that wasn't the case at all. Just here's a sick patient, what can we do to solve this problem? Here's another sick patient, here's another sick patient. So we're just, just taking care of patients one after another. Uh, and this particular technique, which is obviously at the extreme of what we now call critical care, happened to work. So, but, but, uh, so that's what I tell residents who are starting out in this area. If you're going to, if you want to have an impact in, in advancing medical practice, in addition to just doing what you do, and that's certainly enough, uh, then uh, look and see what patients you have that need to be treated. And uh, you see an unsolved problem ten times a day in, in your everyday residency time. So uh, any, any one of those problems that, that looks like it ought to be fixable and worth spending ten or twenty years on, that's, that's the area to focus on. So, so these are thoracic surgery residents mostly who are going to be listening to this discussion down the line. So the question is always, well, what's, what's the biggest problem in this discipline? Well, in thoracic surgery, there's lungs and there are hearts. So uh, esophageal cancer, is that the biggest problem? No, that's a kind of a small problem. So I would focus on something bigger. Transplantation, pretty well solved, but why, why can't we improve transplantation? Why can't, why can't we make organs that don't reject? Well, okay, it could be animals. No, it doesn't work. They have too many viruses, although people are working on it. So the, the secret to both heart and lung transplantation, which, which if you think about it, is that suppose you could do heart and lung transplantation quickly and easily with no limits at all, and it worked forever. All right, that's worth focusing on. So that I would say there's, there's a noble problem. Why can't we do that? Well, we can't do that because we can't maintain hearts and lungs alive outside the body for a week or two weeks or a month during which time we could change the atogenicity, we could match it perfectly, we got all these kinds of things that we could do. So, you know, if, if you were to say what, what's, what's an unsolved problem that could be fixed right now, that's where I would focus on prolonged organ perfusion. In fact, we're doing that in the lab. We're now up to 12 hours with hearts, up to 
24 hours with lungs and our goal is to is to get to unlimited ex vivo organ perfusion but then the question is why can't we do that what if you take a heart lung kidney liver put it on a very good ECMO machine which will keep a baby alive for a year and you can't keep that organ alive for more than six hours why is that why why does it fail fascinating question so we're, we're exploring basically that that's the basic science what is it about uh, organ perfusion that we need to learn in order to perfuse organs indefinitely so a lot of people have worked on that for a long time we have some theories we think we, we think we're going to solve it but but that's an example so pick a problem that's a big problem something that might be fixable something that's probably a little outrageous and then spend 20 years at it Thank you, Dr. Bartlett, for your time, and thank you to our TSRA listeners.